If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor, and it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection, and I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. We are talking all about anxiety and depression and mental health stuff. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you may have heard me talk about my own personal struggle with anxiety and panic attacks. And these last two years have been hard for me in those two departments. And I could not wait to invite the guest on the show that we have today. I sit down with my friend, Dallas Amsden. He is the host of the podcast, Defeating Depression, and he really just hits out of the gate such honesty about the whole subject of anxiety and depression and how it's viewed inside of faith communities and how he has had to navigate coming to grips with his own depression and his own anxiety. And he walks us through what that journey looked like for him. And he also offers such wonderful insight and practical tools that we can use to help us in our own journeys. And I'll be honest with you, this is a topic that I have been pretty candid about, but I think this conversation today is probably up there with one of the most real and authentic conversations I personally have had around this subject. Dallas is really honest and really straightforward. And I, as you all know, I live in that space of authenticity. So I can't wait to dig into this conversation and I can't wait for you guys to meet him. I also have enjoyed connecting so much with you guys in the Facebook group inside of this conversation around anxiety and depression. You guys have been not only a huge support to me in my journey, but you guys I've learned are going through a lot of this same stuff too. So as I've said before, if you're not inside our Facebook group, you really are missing out on a wonderful group of people. You can opt in on my website at justajesusfollower.com backslash podcast backslash podcast group. I also have to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters. We have a new supporter this week, Jeremy Green. I am so honored he's jumped on board to support this podcast monthly and it just means the world to me. If you're gaining stuff from this podcast and you believe in the work we're doing here, I'd encourage you to hop over to our Patreon page and look at the different ways that you can support this show. Again, that can be found on my website, just at JesusFollower.com, and you can click on the button Patreon. Thank you, Jeremy, so much for your support. It means the world. Now, I can't wait to dig into this topic. So I'm ready to introduce you to my friend, Dallas Amston. Here we go. everybody and welcome back to the show. Today we have a special guest. I have Dallas Amsden with us today. He is the host of a podcast called Defeating Depression, which we'll totally get into later. But I, gosh, I met Dallas decades ago, which makes me feel (laughs) super old. But I love this guy. He's great. And I am just eating up this podcast. So Dallas, tell our listeners a little bit about you, where you come from, all those things. Oh my goodness. Where I come from. How long do we have? No. Um, <laughs> I was I was born and raised. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm, when you reached out to me, I was super excited because um, we haven't talked in a long time. And yeah, we met in the mid nineties. So we were both, uh, we were both babies then. That's crazy. 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 <laughs> Well, and we we met, um, obviously, uh, through our parents, and I was involved with um, 
with your mother in in dance at the time and um, had was trained. I was a semi-professional mime at that time of life. And um, and so I learned to speak, obviously. But uh, um, <laughs> we we met through there and I lived in St. Louis, went to college in St. Louis, uh, Missouri area got my degree in musical theater. That's where I met my wife was in college. We lived in LA the last 12 years and um, decided after, after a dozen years there, we wanted to be in a place where my children could have a yard and we could be near grandparents and kind of live a little bit different pace of life than what LA was giving us. And truth be told, part of one of the big triggers of my depression was the LA lifestyle. So mm. interesting. And I cannot wait to dig into that. You did you did mention we both come from the background of having parents in ministry, which is mm-hmm. its own special breed of people, I might add. That's and true. So, PKs, pastors, kids, PKs. Yes. yes. And I, you know, you just never really know where that path will land you. But interestingly enough, now that we're in the workspaces that we're in and we're meeting and connecting with people. This subject of depression and anxiety is one that comes up a lot, especially mm-hmm. inside of groups of people who've grown up in similar environments as you and I have. Yeah. And so could you just describe just in a nutshell, like what is daily life like for somebody who suffers with de- depression or anxiety disorder? Sure. Well, there's, um, there's a couple of different I guess you'd call them levels of depression. And I should probably also tell you, Anna, uh, just as a disclaimer, I am not a medical doctor. So I'm giving my perspective as someone going through it and someone who's learned some tips and tricks from my therapist and my psychiatrist, psychologist, et cetera. So I just, so your listeners know there is a a medical disclaimer on this, Um, but there are different levels. There's situational depression, which is, um, you know, someone loses a loved one and they go through a period of depression. That could be an example of it. But then there's others who deal with more chronic depression. And that's a, that's a general, um, you know, $2 word here, malaise toward life. And um, what the thing I think that people misconstrue about depression is that uh, while there are varying levels, it's not something that makes you dysfunctional in the world. It's not something that makes you um, to where you can't work a job and where you, you just, it's different. You know what I mean? It's, it's not yeah. one of these places where um, I'm helpless it, and, and it's, it could be, it could be from a trauma. Like um, some people who go into depression also have dealt with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, or like I said, loss of a loved one or something, but, There's a trigger that causes your depression, and then there's cycles where it kind of ebbs and flows. So for me personally, I go through periods in my life where um, I'm a little more up. I'm a little more productive. My energy is higher. My focus is higher. But then there's times um, where you just go through a phase. You have a bad week or you have a bad couple of weeks where your energy is down, your total lack of interest. Um, there, two of the big indicators are fatigue and lack of interest, lack of engagement. And, um, some people will, some people will go through it and think, all right, I'm, I think I'm depressed. And then they just realize, well, no, they're just not happy at that point in life. It's a little different than depression because depression is something that's, um, insidious would be a Mm. good word for it. Yeah. And I also deal with anxiety, as you as you mentioned a moment ago. Um, and I would actually say my anxiety is is um, several of my therapists over the years have actually asked me if I was a soldier or if I was a victim of abuse. Because really? yeah, because um, when I describe what my anxiety is like, and and when I have um, a, a panic attack, they'll say that's very indicative of someone who's been like in a war situation or something like that. And I am not taking away anything from soldiers, but I'm the kind of person who, when I enter a room, um, I immediately look for the exits. I, Mm. um, I position my body. Like if we go to a restaurant, I position my body where I'm facing the front door. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's just one of those things I realize I've done it forever. Um, and 
part of the part of the issue with depression that people deal with is um, or, or uh, susceptibility. I guess susceptibility would be the way I'd say it is people who are highly creative, highly imaginative, highly empathetic. Um, those are people who tend towards anxiety and depression because they have big imaginations of idealized ways the world should work out. And when it doesn't work out that way, it either causes anxiety or depression. Yes. And I so I'm connecting with that on so many different levels. So so you say that this is something that you've you've felt most of your life as you look backwards. Am I am I gathering that right? The anxiety. Yeah. The anxiety part. The anxiety okay. part. Um, the depression was uh, very specific. It, it started when we were in Los Angeles and um, and there were multiple triggers to that. Um, but the anxiety is one of those things where. I, you know, you imagine the boogeyman long enough, you begin to look for the boogeyman in a lot of areas. Mm, um, yeah. And it, it's the kind of thing where, um, at my, this last spring, um, I'm sorry, this last summer, we, uh, my, my children were at a vacation Bible school. They were at a VBS and there were hundreds of people. I think I actually did an episode about this on the podcast. There were hundreds of parents and hundreds of children in this auditorium and I was in a spot in the auditorium where I could not see a couple of the exits and literally in, in a church, <laughs> I'm having a full on sweat, uh, almost hyperventilating panic attack to where wow. I had to get up and position myself in a different spot in the room. Um, so because you, you imagine where are things at and I, I like, I'll be walking in the evening, my wife and I'll be going for a walk or something and I'll have a key positioned between my, um, between two of my fingers so that literally if I had to punch someone, I'd be able to puncture them with a key. It's that kind of stuff where I'm planning for the worst, unfortunately, and it, and my, my senses are super heightened in environments I don't know. So the anxiety has been there forever, I've realized. But the depression was something very different that started in the last decade. Wow. So at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to get help. I'm going to see a therapist. I'm going to make some changes. At what point did that <laughs> click? <laughs> uh, it did not click for me because I, uh, I, when we lived in Los Angeles, um, it's almost a cliche that people in the entertainment industry go see a therapist in LA. Um, so it's one of those things where I fought it tooth and nail. Um, mm. I had, I had some very dark times. Um, I will give total credit to my wife that when, um, when it came time to get into therapy, it was actually at her, um, I wouldn't say prompting. I would probably use the word demand. Um, I had gotten into a, a cycle, a horrible spiral of sedation and, um, and it included overeating and it included binge drinking. Um, and I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that I was at a point of thinking I was an alcoholic, you know. It it hadn't gotten to that point, but I definitely was doing it simply to numb myself. Um, and uh, there were several dark nights. I mean, there was nights of proverbial weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. Um, I'm, I may uh, I may get a little emotional when talking about this. Um, my poor wife, Meg, had to, had to watch as the person she loved most in the world was um, just being decimated by this mm -hmm. depression. And I worked as an apartment manager at, a, at a, uh, an apartment building because what I was doing was I took, I took that job so that I could uh, write more frequently, get out and do – ironically, stand-up comedy was – one of the, so doing stand up comedy in Los Angeles while dealing with depression that's pretty cliche as I mean, well it sounds like a perfect fit like <laughs> it a perfect is. fit well because you have so you, much material <laughs> you have a lot of material and you have a big imagination so you're imagining the weird quirkiness of of everything right. and so um so i was doing i was doing the stand up comedy and i was doing um the apartment managing while writing scripts and had these times of just couldn't get out of bed mm. for literally till noon sometimes and would take the, take the office phone into the bedroom 
with me just so I could, if, if somebody wanted to ring and lay there in my dockers and my polo in case somebody came by to want to see an apartment or something like that. It just, I, I had very low energy, very little engagement, um, but then would be up staring at the moon half the night. Um, it was just every, the cycles were off. Everything was off. Um, and then, then when I did drink, it was a lot. And it was, it was just almost challenged myself. How far can I go? Um, mm. And I know you've you've talked about, you know, alcohol and drugs on previous episodes. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. And and you know how how does a Christian uh, how does a Christian hold those two views and especially a PK uh, and and where we came from? How do we how right. do we hold those right. uh, the tension there between those two? And yeah. and the truth is, I didn't. I was hiding it. Um, I was, mm. I was to the point where I was trying to even hide it from my wife and it doesn't work. You know, it, it couldn't, no. it couldn't work, but, um, there was a particularly bad sequence of events. Um, there was a night where, uh, I was, I had numbed myself to the point where I said, I just need to feel something. And I took a knife and I started cutting into my arm. Um, mm. and my wife had to sit there and I wasn't, I wasn't going for a vein, you know, I wasn't, this wasn't a suicide attempt. This was just literally, I need to feel something. Um, and, uh, she called my brother who, my brother, David, he's actually a pastor. He took over my parents' church. He, he took that over, um, for them. And then, um, back in the St. Louis area. And so she called him and she said, I don't know what to do. This is what's going on. He did not know any of it. My sisters didn't know any of it. My parents didn't know any of it. They had no idea what was happening in mm. at out in LA with just my wife. So she was shouldering this whole load as her husband is drunk and cutting himself. Um, and cutting wasn't something I had dealt with. Like when I was a teenager, I know, I know that's something that some teenagers go through phases of cutting. And this was just, this was all I knew how to do. And it, it literally scared her half to death. Um, and then obviously sobered up from that couple of days later, there was another trigger at the building that kind of set me into a spiral. And I went in, um, I told you earlier, it was either binge drinking or binge eating. And, um, I went into our apartment from, from the, from the rental office and, um, my wife was home and I started making a huge pancake. We actually, just this past week, my wife and I talked about this episode together, uh, on, on one of the podcast episodes, it was called the great pancake sedation. And I, I just made this pancake that it was the biggest pan I could find. And it was thick and it was like what you would normally make six or seven pancakes out of the batter all went into oh my one. Gosh. It was oh my huge. Gosh. Wow. Um, but I didn't care. I, I, I looked at her and I, I actually looked at her and I said, I know exactly what I'm doing right now and I don't care. Mm. And, um, and again, it was one of those things she had to, uh, she had to sit by and just watch. Um, and so she says that that, that series of events and specifically that moment where I made that monster pancake, um, she said, I can't help him. He needs, he needs professional help. So she contacted our insurance company and started looking at providers. And she came to me later in the day as I was in my pancake, you know, uh, sugar coma <laughs> from the monster pancake. Um, she came to me later in the day and she handed me a, uh, she actually, I actually, if I remember correctly, Anna, she didn't even go to work. She didn't want to leave me that day. Mm. Um, so she called off work and she comes to me later and literally hands me a, a piece of paper with five names and numbers. And she said, these are your choices of therapists. You have to pick one. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to therapy. And she said, you're absolutely going to therapy because I can't do this mm. and you need help. Um, so she actually forced me long story short, she forced me into going to therapy. And when I first met with my therapist, um, that's obviously that first like meet and greet and ask you a series of questions and have me take some, some do some testing and stuff. And I scored in the 90th percentile on anxiety disorder and uh, severe depression. 
And um, after seeing the score, I think it locked in for me of, okay, uh, I need to, I need to fix this now. Yeah. Okay. First of all, just the bravery it takes to be so vulnerable about such such a hard journey. You know, these so many of us deal with our own darkness and mm-hmm. and it's just part of life that so many of us are conditioned like you said to hide. And the fact that you're being so vulnerable and so honest and just like exposing all of it, it it's just so brave. I'm just I'm so moved by that and I, the part that your wife played in the whole journey is just so beautiful. It's beautiful. And so you mentioned you were hiding it, of course, because that's our instinct. That's our survivalistic thing. We want to hide this stuff. So a lot of my listeners, as I said before, they have grown up in faith communities or they've spent a large portion of their life in them. And I found this commonality with so many of them that have shared stories with me of, well, I tried to go to my pastor or I tried to talk to leadership or friends of mine at church (laughs) and I was told to pray it away. I was told to fast it away. I was told that medication is awful and therapists aren't good because I just need to talk to the counselors at church. So what do you have to say to that? Because that's a large... (laughs) That's a large thing that keeps coming up. Oh, where do you want to go with this? <laughs> oh, um, I want you to give it to me straight. I, w- I want your straight up. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll give it to you. Um, okay. So it's there. There's w- one thing that I think of is there's this um, belief, I guess you'd say, that that it's a spiritual thing and not a physical thing that somehow depression is a spiritual battle. And that's where the, if you can pray it, you know, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it sort of uh, faith element. And, and while, while I believe there is a spiritual alignment that can take place, um, I don't think that that is, you, you definitely need, we need to constantly be aligning ourselves spiritually. We need to constantly be saying, God, how can I, how can I come into alignment with what you have for me, etc. But there are also physical things. So I, I kind of view it as like gears on a machine that, yes, your spiritual needs to be aligned, but then you have to lock the physical into that same set of gears. And sometimes um, you can't – You sometimes in order to get the spiritual right, you have to align the physical. And you have to do some things physically. I mean, I, I think that there are definitely um, there's more than enough evidence out there that it, there are chemical factors at play. There are neurotransmitters. There's you know um, people uh, even just recently, and I saw a study that um, that they're they're realizing that people who uh, deal with depression tend to have this lower lower level of this one particular enzyme in their blood. And they're like, Oh, is that a, you know, is there a correlation there that we need to examine? But you've got, you've got uh, serotonin uh, that your brain needs to be flooded with. And so when the hormones aren't properly, um, when the hormones aren't properly accepting the serotonin, your brain can't get that feel good emotion. Um, the, you know, there's dopamine. And I, I know you and your brother on, on last week's podcast, you were talking about marijuana, but part of what that is, is it's a, it's a physical dopamine that sometimes your body isn't making. And so we want more dopamine because it, it helps us feel good. And so, um, your body naturally produces those things. But one of the things with like medication, um, I was on, I was on a, uh, an SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And, not to get too sciencey on you, but basically, um, your my it was like the neurotransmitters in my brain were bouncing the serotonin back up, and so that's the it was reuptaking and um, going back to its source rather than getting into my brain, and so mm-hmm. medication inhibits that reuptake and it allows the serotonin to start to get in. So um, and neuroepinephrine is another one. So SNRI, uh, selective neuroepinephrine. Serotonin neuroepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. It's the same as serotonin. Um, those two chemicals are very important. And sometimes physically your body isn't accepting what it needs to. 
So yes, you absolutely sometimes may need medication. You definitely talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is incredibly important. That's, you know, in, in church circles, I've done the church council thing, um, church counseling thing. And, um, there are certain levels that they're not able to, to help you talk through. And then also the other thing with church counseling, and I am not knocking church counseling, but, but there also is that, okay, I'm in community with you. And sometimes, sometimes I don't want you holding, not that a church counselor would, but there's that fear and that anxiety that someone dealing with anxiety or depression might have, which is, I don't want you knowing this about me. So I'm going to go to this counselor that's away from, and my, my first, uh, my first therapist, he was, he was a, um, he was a Darwinist atheist and we talked awesome stuff about science and we talked awesome stuff and he knew where I was coming from, from a Christian background. And as an atheist, he still totally respected me talking about the spiritual elements of my life. But it was a safe place where it wasn't someone with whom I was in community. So I felt more open to share that, um, to share some of those things with him. My therapist now, he is a Christian. And so we we get a little deeper sometimes into the culture of Christianity in which I was raised and how that's affected a lot of things. But um, I, I definitely think sometimes you have to get help outside of your faith community. And yes, I there was a period of time where I was absolutely on medication and it helped tremendously. Oh yeah. Well, and even just during my time serving as a pastor, I cannot tell you the amount of people that would sit across from me in my office and say, well, you know, I was told to just throw all my medication away because that's what faith would do. Yeah. And so they would, they would totally go cold Turkey and throw all this medication down the toilet. And I'd look at them and be like, what? Right. <laughs> Why? No, that has nothing to do with your level of faith. This is right. not a, a competition to see who has the most faith and who can go the longest without medication. This has nothing to do with that. Right. No, I, um, I, I was on medication. So I was on another type of medication, uh, uh, which was, uh, they're, they're shorthand known as benzos, benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. And, and there's different ones um, from Valium and Xanax and, and things like that. Um, but the one I was on actually took me to a darker place. And when um, and the, the, the dark thoughts got pitch black for a season. And I told my doctor, I said, something's wrong because I'm getting worse. And she goes, we need to switch up your medication. So there's experimentation involved in that where you try something for a month and then change it out if it's working, if it doesn't work. When it was time for me to come off of medication, I knew it was time though. Um, And I actually said to my wife, I said, Hey, it's time for me to come off. Well, do you need to talk to the doctor about this? Well, I'll tell him I'm coming off, but it's time to do it because I felt like I didn't need it. And it it was, is weird. Spiritually, I felt released from it. Like that season was over. And so in that way, I guess you could say I took a step of faith that I knew it was time. I felt that God said, Hey, you're okay to step off of this now. And I did. And I didn't have any issues following that with that, with the issues I was having previously, I still am in therapy and deal with depression and all of that. But, um, to, to go cold Turkey and to throw it away is not wise. There's It's not, it's, and it's, it can be dangerous. And, and the truth is the side effects of that affect more than just you, the the person on medication. It affects your family. It affects your spouse, your children, all your loved ones, your coworkers. And so when you think of that stuff, you have to think, no, this is not just good for me. This is good for my community of which I'm a part. Right. Yes. And that is, that is a, I, I hate to call it a casualty, but sometimes that's the best word I can use to put on it. Yeah. In depression are the people around you. Oh, and I yeah. think when you're sinking and when you're just trying to stay above water yourself, you're not thinking about the people you're pulling down with you. It, it's just not in there. But you're right. That is such a huge key. And for a lot of people, that is the push like you that it takes yeah. for them to take that step and get the help that they need. You talked earlier about sedation. And and I've heard you talk about this on your podcast. Could you 
talk to my listeners a little bit about that, about what it is, why we need it, and how we can and hopefully could move through it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there, there's various types of sedations. Um, everybody wants to unplug at some point, whether you d- deal with depression or not. You just get to the point where you're like, man, I just need to not feel for a little bit. I need to not be so engaged for a little bit. So typically, um, there are natural forms of, I I call it putting yourself back in stasis. Um, It's that like, okay, I'm measured. I feel serene. I feel tranquil. All feels right. I feel aligned spiritually, physically, emotionally. And so... um, when something comes along and knocks us out of that serenity, that tranquility, we want to get ourselves back to it as quickly as we possibly can. Um, and so things like exercise definitely help. You get that, you get the, that um, endorphin rush and then you get that flood of serotonin. And when you get wins in your life, you get that dopamine rush. So there are ways that you can naturally bring yourself back to a place of alignment Prayer, meditation, worship, those are all things that I do as far as my practices. There are, um, there's, my wife will look at me sometimes and say, go to the gym and lift heavy weights for an hour. You know, she'll be like, you need to go sweat and, and, and lift heavy stuff for an hour, not go for a run. She knows I hate that, but she'll be like, go lift heavy stuff. Um, so there are things that we can do to naturally sedate. I also do uh, a technique called earthing which is basically get your feet in the grass. Um, and, um, and it's, it's really great practice, by the way, I totally recommend it. You're basically by coming in contact with the ground, your body's releasing a buildup of free radicals in your body. So you're literally like scattering this buildup of electrical energy, like a negative charge. Um, and so earthing is one that I do, but when we get to a place where we feel completely overwhelmed and we can't get natural tranquility, natural serenity, we go to the bottle, we go to the cigarette, we go to the, you know, the drug, or we go to sex or we go to pornography or we go to, um, you know, uh, spending on stupid stuff like buying the toys or some people, they Netflix and chill. You know what I mean? They, um, some people will say, well, I just, I've had such a bad week. I can't wait to just binge watch a whole season of such and such this weekend. And so we have to be very aware that there's reasons for our sedation and we have to know what those triggers are. Like, man, if I have to talk with Julie one more time at the office this week, I'm going to go <laughs> nuts. I, I don't work with a Julie. So that's why I use that reference. But, um, so there, there's reasons and triggers why we sedate, and then we have to become aware of how we sedate. Like when we sedate, how we sedate, am I doing something that's destructive to me? Am I binge watching entertainment or am I on my gaming system to the point I'm ignoring the world around me? Am I on social media so much that I'm not actually engaged in my world around me because I'm putting up a front for people to give me little likes and thumbs up and, and, you know, swipe rights instead of swipe lefts or whatever it may be. We have to be aware for me, the the biggest key to my life, Anna is awareness, present moment awareness. And you, you know, that from listening to my show every time at the beginning of every show, I have people get in the present moment with me. And there's a reason I do it because in that moment of awareness, you talked earlier about how raw I'm willing to be about my story. It's because I'm so aware of it. And I know mm. that that awareness is going to help other people. And so the littlest things can trigger me or give me an insight at this point. I'm going to do a, I'm going to do an episode this week about my car turning 200,000 miles old because there's an insight in there about the fact that when you care for something – when you take care of the engine, it will serve its purpose. And so there's an insight there for me to gain, but it's a high level of awareness. But if I'm sedating constantly, if I'm binge drinking like I used to do so intensely, I don't get any of those insights. I'm completely unaware of how I'm wrecking myself, my health, and my relationships. Yes. So much yes to so much of what you just said. And you know, one thing you said that really stood out to me was – 
I, you know, I've, I've never been a gardener. I've never been one that was out working in my yard. It's just not been a thing that I've ever done. But two years ago, when I went through a divorce, I found myself with all this free time. I'd stepped down from my role as a pastor. I was just at home now with my kids and it was this season and I knew it was the season of healing for me. I knew Mm -hmm. that. And I, bought this house with this immaculate garden in the backyard and I'd never gardened before, but I said, well, I want to keep it looking pretty. So I'm going to figure out how to do this. And so I found myself out there every day with my hands in the dirt, pulling weeds, doing all these things. I wouldn't normally say that that would be appealing to me, right? but I felt at ease. That was the only space I felt at ease during that time. Absolutely. I had no idea what you just said about the dirt and connecting with earth. I mean, I knew nature has a calming effect. A lot of people connect with the divine and with God that way. I get that. But I had no idea the power of touching dirt and really getting yourself in there. I, you framed that beautifully. Um, It's when I discovered earthing, I was like, what the heck? (laughs) Why, why haven't I, have I not been doing this? And yeah, a day, a day in the soil or some, uh, honestly, sometimes I will just go out and for 10 to 15 minutes, sit, sit barefoot in the grass, put my hands in the dirt and you just feel it. You know, it. it's, that's how we're made. It's how we're designed to be part of that whole, we're connected to the earth. Why do we disconnect to it? Disconnect yeah. from it. Well, and there's so much of a God presence immediately when you connect with nature. And some people that don't even believe the Jesus story or necessarily connect with who they would call God, they connect with a divine being through nature. It's in us. It happens. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. They get that. You can connect on that, um, on that terminology. They understand it. It's fascinating. Yeah. So this whole sedation thing. So I know a lot of us will happily raise a hand and say, yeah, okay, I do my ice cream thing. I do my Netflix thing. You know, a lot of people are like, yep, I'm tracking with the sex thing. I'm tracking with the porn thing. A lot of people connect with that. How do you break that cycle though? I know you're talking about connecting with earth and doing other things to release what your body needs, but how do you stop those habits? Because when you're habitually in a cycle of doing something to cope, it is hard to stop. Oh, absolutely. Um, so the first, the first, Part of that obviously is uh, present moment awareness. You know, it's it's you have to first recognize the need before you can meet the need. Um, and so, what I have found works really well with that is um, what I call a positive replacement behavior. So, if I know, um, if I know that I always go to the bottle, let's say, when I feel like uh, driving, you know, driving to the liquor store. Let's just use that as an example or wherever driving to the Walmart to get it nowadays. Um, if you, if you feel like that's your positive, if you feel like that's my, this triggers me. And this is always my, um, this is always my drift. This is where I, I fall down into this particular pit. You have to have the lifelines in place. You have to have the ropes in place so that you don't fall. And, um, and so it can be, uh, as weird as it sounds, when I go into a negative spiral now, I literally say it out loud because mm-hmm. the moment I, the moment I say it and say, wow, I'm re- I really literally have been in my office before and said, wow, I really feel like drinking right now. Why do I feel like drinking? And I start investigating it. Um, uh, one of the things that I teach to, uh, I, I have a, a program that I'm beta testing right now that I'm going to be releasing to the market soon. And one of the things I say to my beta test team regularly is too often we invest in the negative emotion. When if what we would do with present moment awareness, instead of investing in the emotion, if we would investigate the emotion and we Mm -hmm. would separate ourselves from it and, you know, (laughs) Not to not to rattle the Christian cages here on your for your listeners, but sometimes there there's a technique in Buddhism be ca- called mm-hmm. being a watchful observer, where yes, you simply are observing. One. Yes, you know this so one. Good. Okay, good. So, good. so I'm not so gonna good. I'm not gonna sound like the uh, I'm not gonna sound like the <laughs> church person who's fallen away, right? <laughs> oh gosh, no! I think they wrote me into that club like 
two years ago. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. So let's talk Buddha for a second. <laughs> totally fine. Um, well, what we what I call present moment awareness, a Buddha would uh, a Buddhist would call mindfulness, and it's this idea of just being in the present moment. But one of the things that you do in the mindfulness practice is you become what the Buddha called a watchful observer, and the watchful observer simply looks at something, doesn't doesn't have an emotion towards it, just looks at it and examines it and observes it, and then decides is um, you know for instance. Let's use this as an example. This was something I, I learned from uh, the teachings of a man named Osho. He, he talked about the fact that you can be standing on a beach full of diamonds and you can desire those diamonds, but you can't pick them up because you're holding rocks. But most of us would look and be like, oh, I can't believe I'm holding these rocks. I'm such a horrible person. And we would we would curse ourselves for holding the rocks, but the, the watchful observer looks and says, well, I'm holding rocks. Is rocks what I want to be holding? If, mm. if rocks aren't what I want to be holding, what should I do to the rocks? I should drop the rocks. And then you simply drop the rocks because the moment you realize you're holding on to something that doesn't, that doesn't give you what you desire, rather than judging yourself for it, you simply observe it. You investigate it and say, will this give me the outcome I desire? If not, I will... I will naturally want to drop the rock right? so that I can pick up what I desire. And so when, when we back to the sedation thing, when, when we're so triggered and so negative and we start moving toward this negative behavior, this binge watch, this, as you said, ice cream or bottle or drugs or, or sex, whatever it might be, as we're moving towards that, if we take a moment and say, this is the rock I am always holding when I get triggered. Mm. How, what happens when I do this? So if I drink too much, I have a headache the next day, I feel like a horrible human being, I judge myself, etc. Is that, is that the outcome I desire? Because if it's not, I will simply drop the rock. Oh, that's so good. Right? Yeah. We Gosh, tr- I, I think that. we try and make it too hard. I think we have to, like, and and I think that, from the Christian background, not that Christ taught guilt, <laughs> but um, over the last two millennia, guilt, the guilt and the shame and the pain of like, if we can't get you the guilt of, of torment now, we're going to talk to you about eternal torment so that right. you can feel guilty and afraid and ashamed to not be. So it's almost as though guilt is used as a control mechanism. And so coming out of that background, I would feel guilty and I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm the worst. And the moment I do that, I pour shame on myself. I'm accessing all of this shadow behavior of shame and guilt and pain and rage and, and, and fear and all of these things rather than simply. So, so as soon as I do that, I'm investing in those negative emotions rather than going, whoa, this is what I do when this triggers me. I need to investigate rather than invest. Right. Well, and gosh, that shame piece, that is it's huge. huge. And and not only is it huge, but it's effective, which is why I think it's been such a large part of most mainstream religions for sure. so long. It's because it works. Yeah. And so a lot of people, especially when you start talking about panic attacks, when you talk about depression, anxiety, mental health issues, there is so much shame wrapped yes. on that whole subject so that if someone does have a panic attack, oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong? God must be so mad at me because I can't handle whatever it is that they're facing. So I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe give us some tools or give us a a different perspective of how to look at this when someone may deal with, say, panic attacks, but they are so conditioned to feel shame over those panic attacks. How would you help them look at that differently? So uh, um I... so we, we ran the gambit of Buddhism. Let me take us back to a scripture. Um, and I, I, can't, I can't remember the, the exact address of the scripture. You might know it off the top of your head. But it's this idea of pulling down thoughts, imaginations, and strongholds. And so there's mm-hmm. a very specific reason, I think, that um, I believe the Apostle Paul wrote that. Uh, thoughts, imaginations, and stronghold. Because they, they follow sequentially in that order. And so what we have is a, a, a thought, let's use fear as an example. A thought comes in of what if a gunman 
came in right now. And that's just a thought. And to the right. watchful observer, that's a cloud in the sky. So you're like, oh, well, that's an interesting thought. Let it float by. But to the to the person with the high imagination, the high empathy, the high anxiety, et cetera, we take that thought and the thought becomes an imagination. Okay, if they came in from that door over there, how would I move to this corner? How would I protect my family? And we begin to imagine the way we would position ourselves to the point where the thought becomes the imagination. The imagination becomes so strong that it actually becomes a stronghold in our mind to where it every time we enter a room now, it, it panics us because we've so built the trigger up. So it's almost like you take this little pebble of a thought, you start stacking it into all these imaginations, and then eventually you've got this tower of a stronghold in your yeah. mind. So in order to replace those things, in order to say, well um, – Nobody loves me because, you know, nobody loves me is the thought, but then we position ourselves to where we begin to imagine a world in which everybody is thinking badly of us or people are talking about us behind our back. And we imagine then that, oh, well, maybe I'm a narcissist and no, I'm not really, I'm a, I'm a horrible human being. Why would anybody be talking about me anyway? So then, so then it's like that one thought of nobody loves me becomes this whole imagination thing to where we get to the point where we actually believe the thought becomes a belief and the belief starts behaviors. And so in order to do that, we have to become aware, okay, this is now the stronghold I've built in my mind. And to take that and say, what would happen again, investigating, not investing, but investigating what would happen if I started a new thought? What would happen if I built a new imagination? What would happen then? Would I begin, if I began to pull down these thoughts, eventually those imaginations would fall apart and the stronghold would com- collapse. So we have to begin with a new thought. In the same way we built up the negative stronghold of imagination in our mind, we have to now begin with positive thoughts. So this is where one of the things I do a lot for myself personally, I have note cards everywhere. I, they're sitting, they're taped to my monitor. They're on my car dashboard. They're in the books I'm reading instead of bookmarks. And they are handwritten notes that I've prescribed to myself. Mm. And it's positive self-talk. And when I see one, I actually stop and I say it out loud over myself a minimum of five times right then. So I it's funny, the desk I'm standing at right now, I don't have one here. They're over at my other desk. But, um, but so literally, I can, I can say to myself, I am, um, I am loved. That, let's just use that because I just used that example of nobody loves me and it becomes this stronghold of, of isolation in your mind. Well, then I begin to go back and I begin to say, no, I'm loved. I'm loved. I am loved. Who loves me? Well, my wife loves me. My children love me. My parents love me. Oh, my coworkers love when I do this. Like I begin to examine and build up the new imagination based on the thought of I am loved that I say it to myself over and over loud enough to where I begin to build up all these imaginations where I picture myself as being loved until the point where it becomes a new stronghold, a good one, because there's a different, you know, a negative stronghold, but there's positive towers of thought. And those are strongholds that we need to be building. And I'm loved. I'm a child of God. I'm fear- I have energy. I am healthy. Those are some of the ones that, that I keep near me all the time. And like I, ha- I put one by my nightstand that says I am grateful. And I, I practice gratitude. So for me, Anna, there's kind of like three things that I do regularly on a daily basis. Number one is I set my intention to where I say this is what I'm going to do today. And, I, and then I, it's almost like a little checklist. And I never, I never put more than three main things on there. Like I have to do these three things today for my social health, health, for my mental health, for my physical health, for my relational health. I kind of put those on there. Then I also do positive self-talk every day. When I see one of those note cards, I say it out loud. People might think I'm crazy, but that's awesome because I begin to say it to the point where I believe it. And then at the end of my day, before I go to bed, I practice gratitude and I say, thank you for this day. Thank you for this that happened. Thank you for this good thing. And I open myself up to rather than the scarcity of anxiety and the scarcity of depression, I open myself up to the abundance that God has for me. Mm. 
Gosh, that's so good. And and what you're describing, it's so powerful, but it truly is simple. I mean, it's not simple always in practice, but the idea is is so simple. Just replacing that, well, what if? What if I was loved? What would that look like? Right. What if there were people that did love me? Well, what what would that look like? What if I can be successful? What would that look like? Just that simple framing in our thought pattern to switch it up. Yeah. And and like you said, build a different tower of 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 stronghold in a positive light. It's it's so simple. And yet I think so often a lot of us have overcomplicated so much of this. Right. <laughs> and it really, really can be simple, small shifts that we make in our mind. It's powerful. What happens when people when people believe it's too difficult, they'll they'll get they'll get motivated for a moment and um and they'll get ignited and excited and and but because they're not being consistent to the small daily steps. They're not actually seeing the transformation. So um, one of the things I also regularly say is that motivation will excite you and inspiration will ignite you, but it is a commitment to consistency that will ultimately transform you. Yeah. And it's, it's deciding to say to myself every day, what is possible for me to take those imagination breaks where I view myself as the overcomer and not the overcome as I view myself as the one filled with joy and not the one filled with anxiety and depression. I do imagination meditations at least twice a day now where I literally take five minutes and just do some deep breathing and imagine myself as the strong one, the healthy one the excited mm-hmm. one, the one who's engaged with his wife, the one who's engaged with his children. I do these imagination meditations because then it allows me to have the energy I need. It actually gives me that that uh, serotonin that I need to feel good about myself. And it actually releases those things. And so it is that commitment to consistency. And if you want momentum in your in your mental health, momentum is built moment by moment. And you can either build negative momentum by continuing moment by moment down the negative path, or you can build positive momentum in your life by, by making a choice moment to moment to not live in the anxiety, not live in the depression, and to say, no, I'm aware of it. I'm investigating this. It's a cloud passing by. Instead, I'm building a stronghold of love and of power and of sound mind and of health and of abundance and not one of scarcity, not one of depression, et cetera. So. Mm, gosh, that's good. See, th- this is why everyone needs to go and listen to your podcast because it's <laughs> just, gosh, it's so helpful. It's so insightful. I want to land the plane here on, on a final thought. So I'm going to sure. ask, I'm going to ask your opinion on this. So a lot of my listeners are in the process of deconstructing their faith. They are now reimagining God. They're reimagining how to read the scripture. They're they're just beginning this journey of undoing a lot of what they've always known yeah. and what they've always thought, which can be very scary and can be very hard and most importantly, very isolating. Sure. So a lot of my listeners are now finding themselves without community. They're feeling like the black sheep of their families or their <laughs> faith groups. And, and with that comes a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And so what would you say, because I know your background and I know that you can understand what these people are feeling. So what would you say to encourage people who are finding themselves in that place? Uh, great question. I would say, um, first I would say it's absolutely healthy and, and you if you're listening to this, you need to know this. It is absolutely healthy to question the culture of Christianity in which you were raised, to question the culture of your faith, because a lot of our cultures are built on tradition and language, you know, certain language we use, traditions we have, songs we sing. And so it is totally fine to pull yourself away from that culture in which you've been born, bred, grown, um, and to say, okay, that may have been fine for that time, or that may be fine for that, you know, group of people or whatever. But for me, I don't, I can't question Jesus. Yeah. That's the one place I always land. I can question everything about the way I was raised. I can examine all of it and say, okay, that was interesting in that era. 
but I'm wondering if now we've created <laughs> created a, uh, a a golden calf out of an experience. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Uh, you, you've you've heard some version of this before. Christianity was always meant to be a movement and never meant to be an institution. It's yeah. and it's an organism, not an organization. And so, um, for for people who question their who question their culture, I go run, do it. Let's let's question it together. Let's examine it so that we don't fall into Pharisee religion that um, can, will lock us out of relationship with Jesus. Um, when it comes to the isolation that that can involve, there is a tribe for you. This podcast is a tribe for you. Uh, this, you know, Anna has built a tribe here um, of people who are willing to move together and question things together and sit around the philosophical circles together. But the one thing I would say is you can totally question a lot of the mindsets and the tradition, but never question the heart of what Jesus has for you. And if you are truly, I, I don't think isolation I don't think isolation is the way we're meant to walk out this Christian faith. I do think it's meant to happen in community. Now, whether or not that's a traditional church setting, I don't know. I can't, you know, uh, there are times that I go, boy, maybe I just need to go off and be a monk for six months Um, (laughs) (laughs) and maybe isolate myself a little further. But even in that, I would find other monks, you know? Right. So, so your tribe is waiting for you and that could be an online tribe. It could be this podcast tribe, but there is a tribe who, who is a Christ tribe that's interested in questioning everything except who Jesus is and how he can transform them. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, you know, my brother and I, I'm sure you heard on our podcast last week, you know, he's like, I'm pretty sure it just comes down to that one phrase, love God, love neighbor. Yeah. And and it's so true. Finding a, and I think that just to, to tie all of this back together to what we've been talking about here, that's what so many people are hungry for, especially people who are hurting, yeah. people who are dealing with depression, people who are dealing with their own darkness. All of us have darkness. And, and I think that that's a stigma that we just have to get right. over is like, no, there is no there is no perfect thing that you're missing out on. It truly is. A lot of people just don't talk. A lot of people just hide. And finding real community that's based on, like you said, the Jesus method of love, the Jesus story of I love you because you're you and it doesn't matter what darkness you carry. I'm in it with you because I love you. End of story. Like we're, we're good. Yeah. (laughs) So finding that group of, of community is so important. And I I think too, I'll say this last thing too, is um, the book of Isaiah as one of the things that we overlook is that Jesus was a man acquainted with grief and familiar with suffering. And he wants to sit with us in our suffering, he'll sit with the woman at the well and he'll sit with Zacchaeus and he'll sit with the beggars and he'll get in the mud with you because he's a man acquainted with grief and familiar with suffering. So don't feel like when you, when we have this stained glass masquerade of religion, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus will sit in our pain and our depression and he'll say, I'm here with you. So even if you feel isolated, you are not alone ever. Mm. Gosh, that's so good. Dallas, oh my gosh, thank you. Thank you so much for just being so vulnerable and being so honest and so willing to use your darkness to help other people walk through their own. It's such a big deal and it's so needed. And so tell my listeners where they can find your podcast and where they can follow you. Sure. So um, my name is Dallas Amsden. It's spelled Dallas like Texas, obviously. Amsden is A-M-S-D-E-N. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dallas Amston. You can follow me on Instagram at Dallas Amston. Um, the Defeating Depression podcast is defeatingdepressionpodcast.com. Right now it's just a landing page, but the website will be coming soon. Um, but defeatingdepressionpodcast.com is the website. Love it. Absolutely love it. I'm a fan. I listen and I encourage all of you guys listening to check it out too because it's fantastic. And you do like a show every week or every day, don't you? Like a five-minute show it's, every day? It's, 
eight to 10 minutes, five days a week, Monday through Friday. And it's, it's basically we utilizing a sports metaphor. We do, um, I give you a positive play call for that day. So you can tackle depression in your life that day. I love it. And I've, and I've told friends of mine who struggle with anxiety and depression, I'm like, you have to check out this podcast. He will talk to you every day. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> you don't have to wait till the podcast comes out. You can find him every day. So it's wonderful work that you're doing, Dallas. Thank you again so much Thank for you. joining us. Thank you. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.